Hello, my name is Thomas. Welcome to British Culture. Albin Never Dies. This episode is James Bond in Istanbul, Part 3. Ian Fleming, Part 3. I'm looking at the novel from Russia with Love, first published in the UK on the 8th of April, 1957, where Ian Fleming draws on his experiences in Istanbul to create the wonderful, wonderful world of James Bond as the fictitious super-spy visits the city. But of course the city is real and it's lively and it's full of interesting things to go and see. And so I'm drawing on my personal experience, uh, having studied Turkish for around 20 years, to try and dive deeper into the details of the book. Last time I said the Tunnel of Rats is my number one uh, recommended place to visit for anyone going to Istanbul. But after that, The Gypsy Camp, which in the movie with Sean Connery uh, was filmed at the Byzantine Wars. I said those were tales for the next time, and this is the next time. So, so we're getting straight into it. Uh, in the Ian Fleming novel, Bond goes into a tunnel access from Darko Karim's office in the Spice Market. Quote, out of range of Bond's light, there was a steady quiet scuttling sounds and in the blackness hundreds of pinpoints flickered and moved it was the same uphill and downhill 20 yards away on either side a thousand rats were looking at bond karim was suddenly behind him it is a long climb a quarter of an hour i hope you love animals rats and bats a whole army and an air force i've abridged those quotes slightly but I want to get straight to the quote from Karim where he explains where are they. It's a lost drain from the Hall of Pillars. The Hall of Pillars is now a thing for tourists. It's up above us on the heights of Istanbul, near St. Sophia. A thousand years ago it was built as a reservoir in case of a siege. It's a huge underground palace, a hundred yards long and about half as broad. It was made to hold millions of gallons of water. It was discovered about 400 years ago by a man named Gilius. In the book, Kerim has guessed that there are more tunnels uh, about two years before the events of this story, and so he bribes uh, the Minister of Public Works to close the Hall of Pillars for a week for cleaning. And in the course of that, discovered this extra network, which he kind of maps out and maps out, all to aid his super-secret missions. It's a wonderful thing. So I started to look into who was this Gilius, very briefly mentioned there, and what was his discovery. And I found a really good bit on a, on a web page for Humanities 54, The Urban Imagination by Julie Buckler, the Samuel Hazard Cross Professor of Slavic and Comparative Literature at Harvard University. So this website is designed to support a course. There are lots and lots of interesting bits of information all scattered around this kind of uh, network of web pages. In 1545, says the webpage, Petrus Gilius, a Dutch traveller, was researching the Byzantine ruins in Istanbul when he stumbled across the Basilica system while studying the Hagia Sophia. Gilius was told that people were able to draw buckets of water from some wells and were able, able to catch fish. Intrigued by the unknown underground source of water, Gilius decided to explore by descending into one of the wells behind an ordinary modern Ottoman building. By boat, he was able to explore the system, leading to a Renaissance rediscovery and much Western publicity for the underground palace after it was published in his travel book. Nevertheless, the Basilica system had fallen into much decay. Having gone unrecognised for a century, it had become a dumping ground for garbage and even bodies. 
While this part in the Liu de Memoir's memory is exciting, due to its rediscovery, it would still take another two centuries until Ahmed III would repair the system. Until that time, the site would sit in decay. However, the rediscovery marked the start of the new function of the system. Whilst it would no longer truly be used as a clean source of water, its function would now allow locals and visitors to preserve and visit the past. And that I find to be very, very true to my own experience. My first trip to Istanbul was actually about eight years after I first went to the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus. I lived in Northern Cyprus for seven years. I studied Turkish and never went to the mainland, never really had the opportunity to. Um, but after, after that time, I, I managed to grab an opportunity and have a real nice little holiday just by myself, going to Istanbul, then nearby Eskishahir, and then to Ankara, the capital today, uh, back to Eskishahir, and then back to Istanbul. So part of all those travels, I went to see all the famous places, because of course if you speak a language, like Turkish, you get to know something of the culture of the country, and a lot of the culture of Turkey really focuses on the culture of Istanbul. Lots of people who aren't too familiar with Turkey will often uh, put Istanbul as the capital of Turkey, although it hasn't been that way for almost a 100 years. Nonetheless, it is the, the cultural centre of Turkey. So you hear so much about it, just as I'm British, and I've very rarely spent time in London, but when I come down to London, and I've spent a bit of time in London recently, I see objects that are very, very familiar, and I know the stories behind them and some of the history behind them, but I haven't really seen them. So going to Istanbul was a fantastic experience, and amid all those wonderful experiences of things that I saw, you know, I've been watching in movies and on the TV and talking to friends about and reading about, of all the things, the Hall of Pillars really stood out, perhaps partly because I went on a very, very, very hot day, and when you descend down to the Hall of Pillars, it is, of course, nice, refreshing, and cool. <laughs> and I remember... Not seeing any rats, uh, not seeing any bats, but seeing plenty of fish all swimming around in the clean water. I've been back since. Uh, a few years ago, I took my then girlfriend Stephanie, now wife Stephanie, to Turkey on a family visit. And uh, we went from China to Istanbul and then carried on on a family visit. Uh, but we were really in Istanbul to get over the jet lag, but again, couldn't resist taking her to see the Hall of Pillars. And again, it struck her as it struck me. It's a very, very beautiful, beautiful place, considering especially it was supposed to be just a functional thing, a reservoir. But it is very, very striking. How to find it? Well, perhaps the easiest way to find it is just to look for the for the lines of tourists going all around the famous sites in the Sultan Ahmed district. You know, they go and see the Blue Mosque and the Aya Sophia and so on, and they just kind of curve around a corner and go to... I don't know, a, a, little, a little door that's not particularly striking, uh, but descends down into it. And of course there are signs, and of course Google Maps helps. We just follow the little lines of tourists that look like they know where they're going. And I actually found that one of the most effective ways. When you're down there, one thing to look out for are the Medusa column bases. So they are the, the bases of the enormous columns with, as the name might suggest, the face of Medusa carved into them and they are turned upside down with a pillar <laughs> placed upon them. Uh, tradition has it is that the blocks are orientated actually sideways and inverted in order to negate the power of the Gorgon's gaze. There are people who dispute this and say it's more to do with the sizings, but it would be the same size one way up as the other. <laughs> so I, I feel the original legend remains. 
Just as a, a fun fact, in the movie, Karen Bay says the Emperor Constantine built it as a reservoir 1,600 years ago, uh, but in reality it was the Byzantine Emperor Justinian I who built it in the 6th century. A curious little, uh, a curious little slip there from uh, Karen Bay. Anyway. anyway, they carry on on their little adventures, um, and later on we head towards what in the movie is the Byzantine Wars. Fleming writes... At half past eight, they stopped halfway up a long hill on the outskirts of Istanbul at a dingy-looking open-air cafe with a few empty tables on the pavement. Behind it were the tops of trees over a high stone wall. Kerim led the way through the tables and into the cafe. It seemed empty, but a man rose up quickly from behind the till. He kept one hand under the counter. When he saw who it was, he gave Kerim a nervous white smile. Something clanged on the floor... He stepped from behind the counter and across a stretch of gravel to a door in the high wall and after knocking once, unlocked it and waved them through. There was an orchard with plank tables dotted under the trees. In the centre was a circle to raise a dancing floor. Round it were strung fairy lights, now dead, on poles planted in the ground. So, as with Fleming, as with the film, I feel there's a close enough connection there that we can have a little look at the Byzantine Wars. Again, it is just a fun location to visit. I took uh, a local Istanbul bus to get there and, and did a little bit of walking. I really enjoy uh, exploring new places using public transport and walking. Obviously, a car is convenient. And, of course, Bond has a, a Rolls-Royce and a wonderful guy, Darko Karim. But for me, I was exploring Istanbul for the first time by myself. Uh, and I really enjoyed seeing something of the city and moving around it as the locals do, in fact. Perhaps I just looked more confident than I felt, uh, but I did have some people coming up to me. They were Turkish tourists asking for directions, and I, I pointed them in what I thought was the direction, making clear I'm not so sure. I am not Turkish. I am doing my best, but I think it's that way. And by the way, I happened to be going there myself, so he took a bus, and thank goodness I was right. <laughs> Istanbul is a bit like London. It's very much orientated around public transport. The whole city has been built and rebuilt and rebuilt long before the invention of the car. So... It is possible to navigate Istanbul by car, but not entirely desirable. So the, the buses, the trams, the ferries, these are very much the life of the city. And if I was a millionaire, I'm not sure if I would be uh, using a car to get around Istanbul. Perhaps in Kerim's day, having one of the very few cars, it was desirable, but not so much now. It's a shared environment. Anyway, that is the last major location of the book. The film has a long section in Aya Sophia, but it's only mentioned once in the book in relation to the Tunnel of Rats. Uh, the Mosque of Sultan Ahmed is also mentioned, uh, who adds famous Byzantine frescoes. Sorry I haven't more time to show the beauties of my country. And they're all in the same district, and they're all very close to the, the Yildiz Palace as well. Of course, the Aya Sophia was built as a church by the Byzantines, converted into a mosque after the 1453 Ottoman conquest, turned into a museum in 1934 after Ataturk's resolution, and then back into a mosque by President Erdogan in July 2020. It has a great deal of history, but I feel the big question is, who are the Byzantines? Now, I actually paid for a, a guy to take me around the Aya Sophia a few years ago, and he was very keen to say the Byzantines, they are not Greeks, and people often refer to them as, you know, a Greek empire, so worth having a little look at this. The Encyclopedia Britannica states that the Byzantine Empire, 
The eastern half of the Roman Empire which survived for a thousand years after the western half had crumbled into various feudal kingdoms and which finally fell to the Ottoman Turks in 1453. The name Byzantine illustrates the misconceptions to which the empire's history has often been subject, for its inhabitants would hardly have considered the term appropriate to themselves or to their state. Theirs was, in their view, none other than the Roman Empire, founded shortly before the beginning of the Christian era by God's grace to unify his people in preparation for the coming of his son. Proud that Christian and Roman heritage convinced that their earthly empire so nearly resembled the heavenly pattern that it would never change, they call themselves Romani, or Romans. So I had a little look on various websites. If they considered themselves Romans, why don't we call them Romans? Why do we call them Byzantines? And quite honestly, the clearest account was from Wikipedia. Of course, all teachers say, do not cite Wikipedia as a source. But uh, what can I say? It was the clearest. The term Byzantine comes from Byzantium, the name of the city to which Constantine moved his capital, leaving Rome and rebuilt under the new name of Constantinople. The older name of the city was rarely used from this point onwards, except in historical or poetical context, which I must add is perhaps a bit like the word Albion, so I should have my sympathies. But in 1648, there was a history of this uh, Eastern Roman Empire, and in 1680, another one, both of which used this term Byzantine, or Byzantina, and it really popularised the use of Byzantine among French authors. It wasn't until the mid-19th century that the term came into general use in the Western world, perhaps due to the politics of the Crimean War, which include Greece's Megali idea. So the Crimean War, of course, in the mid-19th century, a war between Turkey, UK, France, against Russia. The result of which was very, very important. Turkey stacked up debts which it could not repay to the British Empire, and so the British Empire took the island of Cyprus so that we could take its tax revenue to pay off the debt. And of course the first act, one of the first acts of the First World War, was that we no longer recognised the Turks as rulers of Cyprus and it became purely British as a crown colony. So that's very important of course, because that gives us the British connection to Cyprus, and therefore me going to Turkish Cyprus by, uh, by a few little steps along the way. So the Crimean War is, of course, extremely, extremely important. It led to me living in Turkish Cyprus indirectly. The Megali idea is a really curious one and not very widely known outside kind of those who really specialise in Turkish and Greek history. It was the spirit of the age, really. Um, Hitler wished to recreate his Third Reich. Mussolini wished to recapture North Africa, also inspired by the Romans and the Greeks, wished to rebuild their historic empire. It's this irredentism, the idea of snatching back lands that were once ours. Has this fashion passed entirely? Perhaps not. Uh, but the Greeks wished to do the same thing. They wished to absorb much of what is now recognised as Western Turkey, hence the Turkish War for Independence. Anyway, just sketching out those little things. I'm not an expert on Byzantium or the Byzantines, so I'm going to move on from here, having thoroughly enjoyed a weekend of looking through it for little pointers. I'm happy to take feedback if you have deep knowledge of Byzantium or if you've travelled in Istanbul and you'd like to share your experiences. A few people already have. I always really enjoy that when people message me and tell me what they've enjoyed on this topic or what they know or if I can add something or clarify. I really enjoy that. 
What's up next? Well, this series can continue. I can talk about, uh, for example, Sean Connery's Istanbul, uh, you know, with the Hagia Sophia and a few other sites. Brosnan, who visited uh, Istanbul and the world is not enough. Going to Maiden's Tower, I've been, and had a much nicer time there than he had. And, of course, Daniel Craig went in Skyfall and had a fantastic motorbike chase over the, the Grand Bazaar, the covered market, and uh, having a bit of a be a bit of trouble on the trains <laughs> but I won't do these all in one go I'm going to take a, you know, a few other episodes in between again very happy to go on your, your feedback uh, I very much enjoy getting these messages uh, messages of support messages of criticism sometimes and clarification people asking me to add more detail generally more detail very rarely less detail but I appreciate all these messages you can contact me on uh, Fleming Never Dies on Instagram or if you speak Turkish and are listening to this in your second language, uh, James Bond Turkey is mine. <laughs> and that's how I'm connecting to Turkish Bond fans. And of course, um, I have Chinese blog sites. I very much enjoy being interviewed by the Mindset blog uh, based in China about my Chinese social media. So wherever you're listening, however you're listening, thank you very much. And let me know what you'd like. Get in touch. Hope you enjoy it.